Father, thank you for the provision of this uh, room tonight. We know, Father, that you are preparing us in this room and every week on this night for things to come in eternity. Like a, a student in school, we may not know what our job will be. We may not understand all that we will uh, be called to do when we finally graduate. But when we graduate from this life, so to speak, we will, we will learn those things. And so we dedicate ourselves to study now, trusting that you are ready to put it to good work one day, if not today. Father, thank you for the uh, opportunity to study Isaiah, too, to uh, dive into a book that is so rich and challenging, that demands so much of a student. Father, it's easy to, uh, to uh, take a delight and an interest in things that are easy, but the richness of your word, Father, demands a dedicated effort, and we are uh, blessed to have that opportunity tonight. May, we teach, or may I teach, Father, with a clarity that comes only from you, May the uh, hearts and, and minds of those in this room and elsewhere who listen to this teaching be similarly prepared by the power of the Holy Spirit so that what he teaches he may receive in the heart of each person and make it known to them as he desires. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Isaiah 9 and 10 tonight, we continue the book of Emmanuel. Remember last week we said that, that Isaiah spoke at the end of chapter 8 about the fact that he and his sons would stand as a sign to Israel. Specifically, the names are prophetically designating things to come for Israel. So last week we saw at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah turn from this gloomy prediction of what was coming for the northern kingdom of Israel that God had determined to bring the Assyrians to judge Israel. And then I gave you just the beginning of chapter 9, I guess out of sympathy because I didn't want to leave you with that gloomy end to the night. And we looked just briefly at the beginning of chapter 9. Didn't really spend much time on it. Let's go through 9 tonight now, remembering how we came into it. So in chapter 9, verse 1, I'll read 9, 1 through 3 again. We did talk about this, so I'll just review it and then we'll move further. Verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So here's one of many examples in Scripture where specific details of the Messiah's life are included as part of Old Testament prophecy. So this is clear Old Testament prophecy about Christ. What's interesting, and you'll see it here clearly, it's plenty, you can see this in many other places in the Old Testament as well, these clues or these descriptions of the coming Messiah they're all but unrecognizable to someone for whom that has not been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And in particular, given the timeline here, it's almost impossible to appreciate them fully until you're looking back on them. And that's how prophecy is supposed to work, in the sense that more often than not, God uses it to validate or to verify that God's purposes at a future time were known even beforehand so that you would understand God is in control of them. It demonstrates his control over circumstances when we can look back and say that was written centuries ago and yet it worked out exactly the way he said it was. In the hindsight effect of prophecy, God's purpose and his sovereign control is revealed. That's more often the purpose of prophecy. Here's a good example of that. In the verses I just read, were you not to live in our day today, were you to live in Isaiah's day, I doubt, seriously, you would come to the, these particular verses and walk away with a clear understanding of how they refer to Christ. And no uh, surprise in that. When you look at it, it's fairly obscure. But when we look at it now through the lens of history and look back, we can see it very plainly, can't we? For example, as I said last week, the land of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali surrounded the southern region of the Sea of Galilee, which happened to be the areas where the cities of Capernaum and Nazareth reside, the home territory of Jesus. As he lived and grew up and began his earthly ministry. Knowing that now, we look at the text and we say, that's what, Jesus, that's what Isaiah means when he says, God will take away the contempt of those regions and instead bring them glory. Do you remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Jesus approaches some of his first disciples, one of them in particular responds by saying, 
can anything good come of Nazareth? It reflects the fact that that region was contemptible. It had little regard, little value in the eyes of Jews. And it had been that way ever since Isaiah's day, by and large, ever since the northern kingdom had taken, been taken away by Assyria. And this prophecy says there would be a future day when God would restore glory to that region. And, of course, he does it in this sense, in the case of what Isaiah says here, by the very fact that the Messiah's ministry begins there and his home is established there. To one who wouldn't understand this, though, it only sounds like Isaiah is describing the restoration of Israel after the Assyrian invasion. Wouldn't you agree? If you knew nothing about Jesus and his ministry on earth and you came to these verses, what would you conclude? You would look at them and you would say, well, God seems to be promising that in some future day he will restore Israel to that land and uh, take away their reproach. The Assyrians will be taken away and the land will be restored. It just means something simple like that. But in fact, it had a much deeper meaning. Let's look a little more closely here because Isaiah is also weaving in references here to the second coming of Christ. And that's a theme that comes up several times tonight. That he's not only referencing Christ's first coming in these verses, he also leaves some references to the second coming. He says, for example, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Now, in Jesus' first coming, can you point to any experience where that was literally true? I mean, you could argue it figuratively because John himself describes Jesus as the light that came into the darkness. And perhaps he includes that meaning. But there is a literal experience where Jesus comes to this place on earth, to this part of the world, and does so in such a way that he brings great physical light. We know it's the time of his second coming. It's described specifically in Zechariah 14, verse 5. In that, starting there, Zechariah says, Then the Lord my God will come, speaking of Jesus, and all the holy ones are with him. Who are they? Us, the church. This is consistent with what we see happening in Chapter 19 of Revelation. Then it goes further. In that day, meaning in the day when he returns, there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, but neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening there will be light. What Zechariah describes is all the natural light sources in the universe, the stars, the sun itself, the moon, they all dwindle, meaning they all go dark. Imagine a world with no natural light whatsoever. That's Zechariah 4, uh, 14, 5 through 7. In the midst of that utter and complete darkness, Jesus himself returns with all his holy ones with him, and he is himself the light that lights up the sky. How can anyone not see his return when he's the only light in the universe? That's intentional. That's intended to be the way he returns. Later in Isaiah, going back to the passage in Isaiah 9, it says he will multiply the nation. How will he multiply the nation? The nation of Israel, of course, is intended there. Well, in the millennial kingdom, he brings those who have been in faith uh, throughout the centuries back in the resurrection, and they return to reign with Christ in the millennial. He brings all those numbers back. He multiplies the nation. That did not happen in his first coming, not literally. Again, if if you weren't aware of this connection, these descriptions might seem to be nothing more than the way God restores Israel into its land after Assyrian captivity ends. But now, historically, did that ever happen? Not to this day. The, the, northern tri- the tribes of the northern kingdom, once they were dispersed by Assyria, have never returned. And that's intended by God's hand. So you cannot look at these verses and say, well, this is simply a prediction of how God will put an end to the Assyrian captivity because it didn't happen. No, they're strictly speaking a prophecy of the Messiah in his first and in his second coming. In fact, look where Isaiah goes next, verse 4. He says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood and will be for burning fuel for the fire. This is classic prophetic language, kind of inscrutable at first. You're not sure exactly what to make of it. Keeping it, though, in the context in which I've described, that context being Christ's uh, second coming now, He's moved to that description. Look at those verses in light of Christ's second coming. How do they reflect his second coming? Well, we hear first in 9.4 in about him overthrowing some tyrannical armed force. Well, here again, at first thought, you would associate it with the Assyrians, perhaps. But it's not actually a description of God defeating the Assyrians. And you know that because it comes actually later in the two chapters we're going to describe or we're going to read tonight. He'll get to that topic, but he's not there yet. 
So he's not talking yet about how God deals with Assyria. There's another tyrannical force that God is vowing to destroy here through the arrival of His Son. An oppressor who's much stronger than Assyria and who holds many more captives than Assyria will ever hold. Who is the enemy? Who is the, the, ar- the army or the force that He is promising will be defeated upon the return of Christ? It's got to be Satan and all that follow Him, all that are of Him. The enemy is defeated, in fact, by a child. Look in verse 6. For a child... Now remember, it starts there with the word for. He's now explaining how what he described in the prior verses takes place. In verse 6, here's the how. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In the way the text transitions to that very well-known passage, it becomes evidently clear who he's been talking about, obviously, and, and more than just who, the circumstances. I mean, look at the text there. What yoke do you think he's breaking? What rod of oppression? It has to be in the ultimate sense. It can't be in the sense of some earthly kingdom some human government. What a petty thing to, uh, to, to rejoice over if we're talking about the coming of Christ. That's the least of what he achieves. The main issue here is the establishment of the kingdom and of the Davidic throne and of, uh, of the freeing of man, of mankind, of believers from the bondage of sin, the oppression of the enemy of Satan. That's ultimately what he's promised to deliver in this, in this coming. Now, in verse 8, so in verses 1 through 7, the gloom of the Assyrian, uh, of the coming Assyrian conquering of Israel is contrasted with the beginning now of 9 of this future deliverance through a child who will be born and through him a government will be established which will reign in peace. So there's that direct contrast to open up chapter 9. But now in verse 8 of chapter 9, all the way through the end of this chapter and into the very beginning of chapter 10 even, we enter into a new division within the book of Emmanuel, a section of chapters from chapter 7 through chapter 12 of Isaiah that mentions Emmanuel numerous times, describes the coming Christ child. The book of Emmanuel is divided into some loosely based sections. We start a new one now. These sections, as we'll see going forward from here, are easy to discern. Remember what divides them? We said last week. The sections that start to develop now in the latter half of the book of Emmanuel correspond to what? The names of Isaiah and his two children. Because in the way God named Isaiah and in the way he told Isaiah to name his two sons, their names are prophetically describing what God plans to do with the nation of Israel over history. And in this small section of Isaiah called the book of Emmanuel, these names take prominence in the book, in these sections I'm going to describe, so as to explain to you God's plan for Israel. So here in verse 8, we begin the first of the children's names. Here we're going to see Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That was the term that meant, remember, the spoil, speeds, the prey, hastens. It was really a military phrase that refers to how the, the military force is quick to battle and quick to go through the battle and finish it so they can get to the spoil to the plundering that they want to do after the battle is over. That's the term. But it, it, what it does is it invokes in your mind an invading, conquering army with tremendous speed and force. That was its intent. So here you have the prophecy in that son's name of Assyria coming to do what it will with the nation of Israel, with the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's a theme here of God bringing men low, their haughtiness down, so that he can bring down the prideful uh, sin of man and deal with it. Verse 8. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. And all the people know it, that is, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them their adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. 
In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. We're going to move through this chapter relatively quickly, so my pattern here will be to highlight uh, terms or phrases to help you understand the storyline. Some of it should be fairly obvious. The Lord here is sending as he starts a message to Jacob. Who's Jacob? Not the man now, because he's long been dead. So Jacob must refer rather to what? How do we mean specifically Jacob? Israel, but what does that mean? Which Israel are we talking about? All the tribes of Israel. That's why he goes one step further in the next verse. He says a message to Jacob, and then what does he add right underneath that? It will fall on Israel. Now, if I've already said Jacob, and then I follow that by saying it will fall on Israel, what is the natural conclusion you you draw from that? What's he mean? I'm sending a message to all of the tribes, and the outcome of the message, the impact of this message, the, the, the thing I'm talking about will happen to Israel. And in that day and age, who is Israel? Just the northern kingdom. All the tribes except Judah and Benjamin. So, this is what he's saying. I have a message that all Jews need to understand. I'm sending something against ten of the twelve tribes. See what he's saying? I'm going to punish some of you, but you all need to understand why. That's the point of how he's opened up this section. It's not just for the sake of those who will be under the punishment that he's about to announce this. So he says, all. In fact, the word there, fall, it falls on Israel. The word falls, nafal, in the Hebrew, it means literally to bring down. It's going to be to the downfall of Israel. In verse 9, he says, the people will know, meaning the people in Israel, in the northern kingdom, will know that what is happening to them is from God, but, he says, that knowledge won't save them. Do you realize this is just as it will be in the day of tribulation? And as you know from past weeks in this course, or if you've been with us or been with me and I've taught in Revelation in the past, the the time of tribulation, a seven-year period of time in which God will bring tremendous calamity upon the earth, directed specifically, though, at who? The Jews. It's a time of Jacob's troubles, the Old Testament calls it. It's a period designed to affect the Jewish nation principally, although, of course, it affects the whole world in in the course of events. It's not to their destruction. It's ultimately to bring them back into the bond of the covenant. It's for their salvation, eventually. But it comes in a form of this punishment, of, the, of this judgment. In the day of tribulation, there's a very similar effect. Look at, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 16.9. 16.9, we hear this. In the midst of all that goes on during that terrible time, this is what we are told. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. It's an amazing and almost unbelievable thing. As they're in the midst of this torment, they know who to blame, meaning they know who's causing it, and yet it's not enough to get them to repent. They're not confused as to the source, and its only effect is to cause them to blaspheme God all the more. It's not, about an, it's not an ignorance problem. And here again, in the time that uh, Isaiah is describing, he says, they'll know that this thing that's happening to them is from God, but it's not enough. The knowledge of that does not bring them to repentance. Pride is the most convincing liar. And even as the Assyrians begin to conquer the north, the people we hear in verse 10 declare that they can overcome this in their own power. They have the solution to their problem. They can cut down our sycamores. We can find a way to raise up cedars. The statement is ludicrous on its face. Oh, I I, I lost a sycamore? Let me just grow a cedar right now. Prideful ignorance. And their pride, we're told in the verses I read, is met by the Lord pushing Israel's enemies all the more. Historically, this is what we know happened. The Assyrians pushed into Israel from the east. The Syrians, joining them in attacking the northern kingdom, invaded from the north. And the Philistines, who were always opportunistic and looking for any any chance at all to, to, to take land from the Jews... They saw an opportunity and they invaded from the south, just as Isaiah describes here. What he says here prior to the event is exactly what we know happened historically, afterward, later. Even after the destruction then is done, God's anger, we're told at the end there, is not exhausted. He's not done with them. Or another way to say it is, this event did not satisfy his wrath for their sin. It's not the end of the story. In fact, look at their response in verse 13. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck him, who, who struck them. Nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So, 
The Lord cuts off the head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder, an honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. And therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of their own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. And every mouth is speaking foolishness, and in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. As in the time of tribulation, which is yet to come, God's judgment here does not result in repentance among these people. In the phrase I read as I began that passage, it says, they do not turn back. The word turn back in Hebrew is shub, and it literally can be translated repent. They didn't repent. And that's not surprising, folks. If you understand what Scripture teaches about the method that God uses or the way in which men or a woman comes to know God and believe and follow Him faithfully, if you understand that process and you understand what Scripture says about it, it's clear that judgment, when it is poured out in any form from God, is not, is generally speaking, not for the purpose of conviction to faith. It's not for conversion. God does not convert with a stick. Wrath or judgment is the natural expression of a holy and just God against sin. It's simply that. And even if it does not intend to bring men to conversion, it is right and it is just when God chooses to pour judgment out against sin and it remains right and just even if His intentions are not to use that wrath to bring men to faith. In other words, he doesn't have to have that as the outcome or the purpose in order for it to still be a right and just thing for him to do. The mere fact that sin exists in a world created by a holy, right, and just God means judgment is the natural expectation. When it doesn't happen, we have something remarkable to talk about. That's when it's really news. That may beg a question, and well, what is it that brings conversion or, or belief? What is it that God uses then? Well, Romans 2.4 probably sums it up best. He says, Do not think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. God is all perfect. So no matter what attribute you choose to talk about, it is still going to be expressed from God's from his nature, in perfection. So when he is in wrath against sin and pours out judgment, he will do that in, perfect, in perfection, which means everyone who's guilty will receive what is theirs. When he is, though, turning and dis demonstrating mercy, grace, and kindness, he is equally perfect in that, capable of bringing any man to know him and to follow him. And so Paul is saying, don't take lightly the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, because that is the means by which he will bring men to repentance. So in keeping with God's charge to Isaiah, remember how God opened Isaiah's ministry in chapter 6? In keeping with that charge where he told Isaiah plainly right up front, I am not yet ready to bring the nation to repentance. I will one day, but not yet. And not in your lifetime. So, speak, but they will not hear. Your ministry is not intended to bring about the immediate conversion of Israel, though through the written word it may yet do so. But in your day, don't expect it to do so. And in keeping with that, he's telling Isaiah to talk about a day of judgment for Israel. He says, I'm going to cut off the head and I'm going to cut off the tail. It's a great picture here of how the two roles of leader and prophet work among the people. Let me, let me try to help you see that. The first one's really easy, right? The head, the, the leadership. You know, where the head goes, the body goes with it. Remember that great movie, The Greek Wedding? My Greek Wedding? What is it? The man is the head, but the woman is the neck? Or she turns the head? Okay, we won't get into that debate. So if the leaders of Israel are the head here of the nation, then it makes, I mean, the conclusion is obvious, right? They directed their people into sin, into idolatry. The people followed. Uh, that is not to say that the people were not culpable. He says as much, right? They are all godless. They are all evildoers. But it still shows that the evildoing began with the false leadership. 
So they follow their leaders for better or worse, and they suffer along with them. The tail analogy, though, is a little more interesting, and it's, it's uh, maybe not quite as obvious. The prophets, he says, are the tail. Now, in many wild animals, and I'll, I'll use the example of deer, for example, the tail is, is used by the animal as a signal to other animals in the herd for approaching danger, for whether or not there's any scent that's unusual or unexpected. I mean, I don't know all that goes on in the brain of a deer, but from what I'm, from what I'm told, the tail is their, is their warning sign. You know, if it's loose and happy, that's fine. If it, you know, if it goes up, something's wrong. You know, the other animals watch for that, right? So the false prophets, in comparison, if you draw that analogy out, false prophets did not warn the people of the leader's sin, of the mistakes in the culture, of the problems with what they were doing. In, in, in another way you could say it is, being the ones who keep the word of God and have the revelation of God, they should have been the ones to correct, guide, and, and ensure that the nation was on the right track. And in, the, in a sense, they failed at that. They were not the tail. They were not the warning sign. They did not give the people what they needed. They gave no warning at all. So they're cut off. And when the head and the tail are both rotten, everything in between suffers. Everything in between is bad too. And he says, all had participated in sin, all had been led astray, all were guilty. Secondly here, our status and our station in life does not mitigate our guilt. And you know, we have a tendency, of course, to see people in their station of life and their status in life as being more or less guilty. The rich, pompous, billionaire, greedy landowner, whatever, 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 well, of course, they're going to get their due one day. The poor beggar on the side of the road, the orphan, the widow, well, God will show them mercy. Folks, our opportunity for mercy and for God's grace is the same. I don't care what your station is in life. If you are a believer and you're a rich, money-grubbing tycoon, well, you'll be saved by faith, not by works, and you may see some, uh, some lack of uh, reward, if you will, for not having been a better witness in your life. That's in God's control. He's the judge. Similarly, you may be a poor, destitute orphan or widow born into unfortunate circumstances and live a life of destitute poverty your whole existence. And if you never come to know the Lord, that doesn't gain you anything. We tend to see it that way. We tend to assign value to things. To divorce the human instinct away from it is tough, but if we strip that for even just a moment and look at it biblically, we have to understand that it's faith, supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Knowing that, we don't attach sentimentality to it either. And God looked at this group of people and said, you know, you're all godless, you're all evildoers. Yes, you may have been led into it by your, senior lead, you know, by your leaders or by your prophets. It doesn't matter. You're all who you are. And I'm not going to spare any of you because I'm just. I'm holy. I can't be untrue to my nature. As Paul says, the clay cannot hold the potter accountable for what he may choose to do. And as God eliminates the leaders and the populace dissolves into civil war, things get worse. And I'll just finish on that. You notice they start fighting each other. Don't be misled by the references to eating each other. That was euphemistic. There's no record of any cannibalism taking place during this time. We're speaking here about the tribes of Israel fighting one another, going after one another, devouring each other, because they end up in a civil war state, in, in disarray. And you notice they're not, they're, Manasseh is set against Ephraim, Ephraim against Manasseh, those are two northern tribes, but they're all set against two. Judah. Remember, and keep this in mind, we've said this before, the northern kingdom of Israel are rebels. They are apostate. They are godless as a society. They, in the time of Solomon, after his death, they departed from the true Israel. They set up a false kingdom, a false priesthood, a false capital, a false temple. They were never true once they left from the, from the kingdom of Solomon. We talk about them being Israel and Judah, but from God's point of view, Judah was all that was left. These were imposters. They, all, they had nothing but evil kings and they had no good testimony. So this is simply the culmination of that God bringing judgment upon them. Moving into chapter 10 now. Uh, Isaiah adds a bit of social commentary here against the leaders in his day. The, the men here who, who fall under this judgment we've just described. The, the heads, if you will. Verse 1, he says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record e uh, unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment, in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. And in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. 
that repeating phrase is to emphasize the point that despite all of this happening, it is not to say that when it's over, God's going to say, okay, now everything's fine, come on back. They're scattered. They don't ever return. Not till the time of Christ's return. So this is something that will remain as a, as a permanent, if you will, in our, in our world, in our age today, a permanent setting aside of these, of these tribes. Now look back through some of what he said. He said, in the case of the northern kingdom, the evil that they exhibited took the form of evil law and evil decision-making or, or uh, justice, if you will. And that's, stark, that's in stark contrast to the one who's bringing the punishment upon them now, isn't it? God's holy law, which they violated, the old covenant, that's the basis for this judgment. That stands in contrast to their unjust laws. And then their unjust decision-making stands in contrast to God, the perfect judge, who is now executing his justice against them. And he lists some of what they did. This is sort of the worst of it, if you will. They chose to take advantage of the lowest and weakest and the le- most vulnerable in the society. And, they, and as they do these things, God says through Isaiah, where are you going to go for your rescue? You know, when I bring my justice, my judgment against you, uh, how are you going to save yourself? And I love the reference to wealth because, man, oh, man, that, that is very contemporary for us. There are many people, I think, who believe that the wealth that they've amassed ultimately is their protection in this life or in general, forever, among unbelievers, certainly. Despite the obvious limit, you can't take it with you. But that doesn't seem to matter. You know, they'll take as much as they can even still. And it means something to them, right? It's the way they build a bigger home, a better fence, a better security system, a nicer car. You know, it's the way they insulate and protect and defend and, and insure and finance their life. And the stupidity of it is they only have a dollar because God gave it to them and he'll take it when he wants. And if they think it's protection in the, in the in-between, they're only fooling themselves. And God's telling them now, you're the richest. You became rich out of the way you took advantage of so many in the society. What happens when I take all your riches? He says, you'll have two choices. You can be among the dead or among the captives. And I'm not sure, frankly, which one is worse in the case of what really took place when these people went into captivity. It wasn't pretty. I want to point out verse 2 and then we'll pass these verses on. Verse 2 gives you the tie-in to Isaiah's son. Remember I said this section we would study that was chapter 9 and then the first part of chapter 10 corresponded to which name? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Verse 2, look at verse 2. In the Hebrew, when he says, widows are their spoil, orphans their plunder, he's using in those phrases the same words, shalal bazar or shalal hashbaz. So if you read it in the Hebrew, it's like the kid's name just jumped off the page at you when you got to this verse. And that's where the point of the name comes in. This plunder, this coming of the judgment of Assyria is pictured or prophesied through the name of Isaiah's son. Now, Isaiah begins to transition to the next theme. What's the next theme associated with? It's, it's with his other son. Remember that kid's name? Shear Jashub. And that name means remnant returns. So think now more broadly. I'm going to go into it in a moment just before we do. Begin to think more broadly. If, Jesus, if through Isaiah we're, we're looking at pictures of Christ and we're looking at pictures of God's judgment against Israel, but now we're starting to look beyond the judgment period. We're looking at, in the case of the first son, a period of outstretched hand, of keeping them away, if you will, in judgment. That will transition now to a discussion of a remnant returning. By definition, we said a remnant is a small group within a larger apostate group. A small believing remnant within a larger unbelieving group. Okay? A remnant now is being prepared. We know Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation which begins to talk about the coming kingdom when Christ returns and reigns on earth. So put them somewhat in a sequence because they're being given to us now in a sequence. First, there's this Assyrian captivity. That transitions now to the Shear Jashub son, the one who represents a remnant. Following that, we'll finish with Isaiah. So we see history, in a way, being painted in big blocks of time. Not timelines, not dates, but just events. So let's look at how the second side of the second part of this takes place, named after this, this other son. The new, six, the new section here in verse 5 will begin by addressing Assyria's role in God's plan, including their failures and therefore their coming judgment. Verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, 
and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample down them down like mud in the streets. Yet, it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. But rather, it is its, pur- it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So God starts this little section here, now moving into the second uh, name of of the children, by declaring woe against Assyria as well. Now, that makes some sense, at least initially, because you're saying to yourself, well, I hope he deals harshly with them. Look what they did to Israel. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> he says, very next thing, they were God's appointed instrument for judgment against Israel. All right, now, wait a minute. How could he judge Assyria for doing the very thing that he asked them to go do? Well, the short answer is he's not. His concern with them is not because they did what they were called to do against the northern kingdom of Israel. By what I just read, what is his problem? What is God's concern? They didn't stop there. The problem wasn't that they were effective in conquering Israel. The problem was they didn't stop there. They went a step further. He directed this nation, this nation of Assyria, the entire nation of people here, through their leadership, obviously, to do his specific will against Israel. I want want you to think about that for a minute. Think of it from a historical point of view now. An entire nation, the most powerful nation on earth in its day, was directed into a long, difficult military campaign to destroy a certain nation, and it was done because God willed that it be done. Now, what's awesome about that is think about how that had to take place mechanically in in terms of real life. One day the king and his advisors had to decide to do this. And as they decided to do that, they had to communicate it to people, and other people had to follow their orders and do it all. And nothing could stop it, right? It's not as though God could ask it to be done. They got halfway there and they ran out of gas and said, I'm sorry, well, we're not going to be able to do what you asked. What he purposes to do, he will do. So nothing could stop it. In other words, it's not just what they decided, it's that all of the events around them had to fall into place so that it would happen. We see involved in making it happen a whole cascade of events that had to stay under his control for it to be possible. And in seeing all that, you have to beg the question, well, what is he not in control of? Does this only happen once in a while? Once in a while, God decides, it's time I take some action, and he gets a country to stand up and do something. You know, if you play that logically out, you quickly reach a point where he's either in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. Because if there's anything that can happen outside his control, he can't be sure anything he plans to do will happen the way he wants. So when we read in a text like this, passages like this, that he sent a nation of Assyria against the godless nation of Israel as an expression of his fury, it becomes an important counsel for us, I think, in understanding Scripture generally, because it reminds us of God's power in the course of human affairs is limitless. You can't set boundaries, in other words, on God, and you can't do it in ways you may not even be aware you're likely to do it. For example, one way I hear it done commonly, and not intentionally, I would, I would suggest, is to say things like, God loves us too much to impose himself upon us. Think about that. If unrestrained human liberty and the right of free choice is to be a litmus test for God's love, what a weird and wacky definition for God's love. Because God defines love in exactly the opposite way in Scripture. Exactly the opposite. He defines his love as grace, which by its very nature interrupts the normal course of human events. God's grace, by definition, interrupts what would have otherwise been the course of events in every human's life. And particularly in the eternal sense, right? The wages of sin is death. If he doesn't step in and do something, where do we all end up? So by definition, the love of God is most exemplified in the fact that he doesn't allow natural human free will, if the thing we call liberty, to play out to its natural conclusion. He cuts it short for you and I, I hope. And therefore, if he's doing it on an individual level, then by definition, he's already, quote, interfering in the course of human events. And if he's doing it in such a way that he's doing it for multiple people, then he's doing it for nations, by definition. In other words, God is doing it all over the place all the time, because that's what it means to be God. There is no nation that does anything that is outside of God's will. 
It all plays to good in the end because it's all according to a plan he established before the beginnings of the world. And it doesn't blame him for the sin that came into the world. It simply illustrates he's control of man despite the fact that it's sin. So we can't set those boundaries. We have to see God directing human behavior in specific ways, not just in grand biblical ways. He didn't just part the sea. He also made the water and the ripples on it. On verse 7, they did not intend, in verse 7 it says, they did not intend nor plan in their heart to do what God directed them to do. And by that he means to bring down Israel alone. To do it and then to stop there. What they did, as you see described in the verses that followed, was they didn't just focus on the northern kingdom. They chose to go a step further. They attempted to cut off, quote, many nations. You see that in the text. And then a step further, he says, to cut off Judah, to cut off Jerusalem. They started to say, well, if we're capable of taking down Samaria, remember Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and we took down their idols, then what's the difference? We can take down Jerusalem and their images. It's all the same. That's their thought. That's how they perceived themselves. But they were wrong. God only intended that Israel would be their target. So in verse 11, the Assyrians decided... Jerusalem's no different. Let's go down there. But their error was in assuming that Samaria and Jerusalem were no different. There was a world of difference between the two cities. Samaria was a house of idol worship. Jerusalem was God's holy and appointed city. World of difference. And Assyrians made that mistake of assuming all kingdoms are equal, all earthly kingdoms are equal. I won't go off on this for the sake of time, but I think it's a comment I can just make in passing. We risk making a similar mistake, if not to the same degree, Uh, at least of the same kind, if we were to look at the earthly government of Israel today, for example, the earthly political institution of Israel today, and if we were to assume that because they are not religiously orthodox by and large and they are not following God's law in in an appropriate way generally, they are not being true Jews, that therefore we can dismiss that nation as well and say, well, they're not the real Israel anyway. They're just a a make-believe group of people living in the same land. Well, be careful with that. Because the people who were living in Judah in the day that Assyria came into town weren't particularly pious, weren't particularly faithful group of Jews either. But they were in Jerusalem, and that was the city God had intended to protect for the sake of who? Who? Emmanuel. Remember? He protects the city for the sake of Emmanuel. Because no Judah, no Jerusalem. No Jerusalem, no Christ coming. No, no place for him to be birthed and do his ministry and die on the cross. That had to remain until the first coming. That's why there would be no destruction of that city. The Assyrians didn't think about that. Of course, they don't know that because they're not understanding God's ways. They just knew they had to go down and destroy Israel. They took it the next step on their own. And we could make a similar mistake ourselves in treating Israel too lightly even today. Now, just to finish this thought, you may be asking yourself, well, wait a minute, Steve. How do we really know they understood what God gave them to do? Are we saying that God directed them and they were just oblivious to it all? Actually, no. In 2 Kings chapter 18, a scene is portrayed, which we will actually come to and study as part of Isaiah, because Isaiah describes the same scene later in the book. But just to cover it in passing here, you have Assyria who has come into Judah and they are camped around the neck. Remember from last week? They are at the neck. They're, they've taken most of the country. They just haven't been able to breach the walls of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is still under King Hezekiah. And the nation of Judah is under this siege. And at one moment, the representatives of the Assyrian king come to the wall and are exchanging discussions with Judah. And in the course of that discussion, they say this one thing, verse, one verse out of 2 Kings 18.25. The representative of Assyria says, Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now, They're right and they're wrong in that statement. Because even though they had been given the authority to go in and destroy Israel, they had not been given the authority to go in and destroy Judah. So the statement at the wall was intended to tell the king of Judah, we're here to destroy you because God sent us. Well, not exactly. You were sent to the other one. This one is not the one you were sent to. So God declares judgment against the Assyrians for acting presumptuously. I love the way he does this. Great passage. I love this passage. Verse 12. Look at how he describes them and his response to them. He says in verse 12, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, By the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, 
For I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest as one gathers abandoned eggs, and I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Now that's the statement of the Assyrians. Now God's response in verse 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it? Or like a rod lifting him who, would, who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. All right, so this is a comprehensive, dramatic judgment against Assyria going on here. As I said earlier, the moment this occurs, remember this whole scene of, Is- of Assyria being around Israel, trying to take Jerusalem and camps and all that, and then at this point in the prophecy you see here, they're destroyed trying to take uh, Jerusalem. All of that's described later in chapter 37 of Isaiah. So, and when we get to chapter 37, what, uh, you know, like a couple months, we will be looking at this scene again historically, because Isaiah describes it because he, he was actually a witness of it. But now, he simply talks about it prophetically, that it will come, without talking about the details. He begins here in his, this passage by allowing Assyria's own thoughts and words to stand in judgment against the nation. Look what they do. Just a great picture here of the human heart in general. They attribute their own success here to the, or to the, they attribute their success to their own strength and to their own wisdom, to their own might. Their, but in their case, that would mean specifically their numerical strength and their military might and their human wisdom in the form of their libraries of knowledge and their wise men and the like. So, they see what they've done from kind of hindsight and they tell themselves, I'm pretty good. Ironically, or not so ironically, they know God sent them to do it because they've said as much as I've quoted already. And yet, in their own pride, hey, look what I did. Secondly, they attribute their success to their wealth, which they obtained largely from plundering these nations. So they, they say, look how wealthy I am. I have control. And nothing they could do stopped me. You notice that? They couldn't do anything to prevent me. My domination was complete. But then in verse 15, we saw God reply, now, his dialogue here is reminiscent of some of what you hear in Job, if you've ever studied that book. Because he starts to dialogue here in a kind of rhetorical sense to illustrate the absurdity of what they're thinking. And he uses this, these great analogies. When an axe lies on the ground, does it have any power? Only when an arm picks it up and, and wields it, does it have any power to do anything of use uh, to anyone. And more importantly, its power is in direct proportion to the strength of that arm. A sharp axe is a good tool, but given to a three-year-old, it cuts virtually nothing except the three-year-old. In the case of a a strong 20-year-old man, it can cut down quite a few things, right? It's all in proportion to the one who wields it. And Assyria, God says, was like an axe or a saw or a club or a rod. It did what the master determined it would do, and only to the degree the master wanted and under his power. And yet, in its pride, it turned around and began to take credit for its work. What would happen if the axe could, if it were possible, take credit for cutting down the tree right after you finished using it? It would be tremendously surprising and then offensive. How dare you credit yourself with cutting down the tree, right? That's God's perspective of man. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration in his case. I think he sees us exactly that way. And therefore, he judges them for doing so. And he often does this in Scripture. He chooses a form of judgment that's directly comparable with the nature of the sin so that it will underscore the sin in the way the judgment plays out. In this case, what were they so proud of? Their might and their strength in numbers. How does he take it away? If you want to, you can turn to Isaiah 37 just briefly, because it's the story I said we'll get to. But just look at two verses that explain how God actually stopped them. And it's an amazing comparison between this chapter and chapter 37. I want want you to see the comparison, because it's really quite interesting. Chapter 37, verse 35. What he's doing here, if you were to read the context, is he's answering a prayer from King Hezekiah who has gone to the Lord and said, Lord, tell me how you're going to save us from this invading army. 
And Isaiah records God's response. In verse 35, he says, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So who fought the battle? God, not just figuratively, literally through the angel of the Lord. Now I want you to go back and look at what we just read in Isaiah. I think you'll find this interesting. Look at the verses in chapter 10 I just read. He says, because you've been this haughty, prideful group, look in verse 17. You know, verse 16, he says, a wasting disease among the stout warriors. That's a reference to what happens overnight in that scene in, in chapter 37. Go a step further, though. Look at verse 17. And the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. Who is he referring to there? Who is the holy one of Israel? Christ. Jesus. He, the light of Israel becomes a flame. Who in chapter 37 is attributed with destroying the Assyrian army? The angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord in Scripture? Jesus. This is a prophecy of how Christ himself will take up arms, if you will, and destroy the Assyrians and do it in such a way that the judgment evokes the sin. You thought you were proud and numerous, so I, I come in in a moment. God's hand, not another army, just God alone and waste you away in a moment so that you have nothing left. That was the end of the army. Isn't that interesting? And he's doing it all for whose sake? For his servant David's sake. And I believe that is, it's looking back to God's promises to David that his kingdom would have no end and that the throne would always have a, a descendant on it. And of course, to fulfill that promise, it looks forward to how the coming Emmanuel will be the fulfillment. So he said again, it's another way of saying, for Emmanuel's sake, I will do this. Now, I'm going to finish the chapter in one long stretch of, of verses, but as we read them and finish them, there is a fantastic parallel here. I would just rob you if I didn't uh, show it to you. So we'll finish with one reading of the text to the end and then an explanation of what I'm referring to. A fascinating transition here in verse 20. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel, this is where the name Sheer Jeshub stands out. If you were to see it in the Hebrew, his name is standing out right there in the text. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, Sheer Jashub, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed. Does that sound familiar to anyone who studied another book of the Old Testament? Does that sound like some text you've read out of Daniel chapter 9? It should. It's supposed to. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord of God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against them like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. He will come against Ayath. He will pass through Migron and, and uh, Mishmash, he's, his deposited baggage. They have gone through the pass saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Ramah is terrified and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Lysha, and wretched Anathoth, and Metamanah has fled. The inhabitants of Gebim have sought refuge. For today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are in tall stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Now there's a lot of place names and references in toward the end there that if you go back and look at them, many of them have some significance. I'm not going to dwell on them because they reinforce the point I can make without having to spend the time to do that. First, look at how the passage opens. Very important. He says, now, in that day. Now why is that important? Well, that term... Traditionally, and it applies here as well, references a future day, not the day of Assyria's destruction, but a day that is yet even future for us today. 
It, and I realize this may sound counterintuitive to us because it seems to be emphasizing that it is the same day as the Assyrian destruction because it says, in that day, as if in the day of Assyria's destruction, right? But the word that refers to a special day that everyone understands and is looking forward to. It references specifically Christ's second coming. It references specifically Christ's second coming, but more generally, the events leading up to it, which we know are tribulation. So it's kind of a broad phrase here to mean those last times as the world is coming to an end, as God is dealing with Israel in tribulation, as Christ's return culminates. That's the sense of it here. It's a broader statement than just a literal day. Now we know this is the intended focus here by the fact that Isaiah begins to talk about it in detail here, and that's how I can be so sure. For example, he introduces again the theme of the remnant. In fact, in verse 21, as I said, he uses the name of his son, Shear Jeshub. And then looking at the language that follows, he says, look at what he describes as true about this remnant. None of them will rely on the one who struck them again. Who, who struck them, generally speaking? Satan, the enemy, idolatry, a life separated from God. None of the remnant will ever rely on him again. How is that possible? How can any group of people be said to be 100% faithful forevermore? Only if we have been transformed out of this body and, and generally into an incorruptible one. Only after a resurrection. Similarly, he goes on to say after that, that they will instead rely on the Holy One. Obviously, if you think of it in terms of Assyria only, if you try to explain this passage as simply a description of what God will do in the day of Assyria's destruction, did this happen when that day came, when Assyria was finally destroyed? Did all of Israel at that point, the remnant in other words, remain true to God uh, and, and remain true to Christ more specifically? Not a chance. So with that alone tells us, whatever this day is, it's not the day that we know Assyria was destroyed on, it must be speaking about some other day and perhaps using Assyria as a kind of picture. And that's in fact what's happening here. Through the rest of this passage, he uses terminology, and if you remember, I paused there for a moment and I said, does this sound familiar from Daniel chapter 9? It should because Isaiah uses almost identical language to a passage in Daniel 9 that we know is talking about tribulation. And that identical nature is a good clue for us to know he's describing, he's alluding to that God will have in this coming future a period of judgment of tribulation against Israel which culminates his wrath. If the Assyrian arrival is the beginning of his wrath, and remember he said, even though it's over, I still stretch out my hand, the tribulation is the culmination of that wrath. So, what do we learn then about watching what happens here with Assyria? Assyria's arrival their siege of Jerusalem, their destruction by the hand of God becomes a picture or a preview of what future event? It's obviously a future telling of another time when Israel will find itself in distress in its land, captive of an enemy seeking to destroy it, an enemy that is destroyed by God's hand, not by a human army. Isaiah and God are connecting here two events, one that's contemporary for Isaiah but one that is future even for us today. And the contemporary one begins a period of judgment for these tribes, and this future one will end it, or be the culmination of it. The trials and the distress that the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem create for Hezekiah and for his people in their day are a picture of whose attack on Jerusalem? The Antichrist. And again, I'm presuming you know something of what goes on in tribulation, and without that knowledge this may be a bit... Uh, difficult, But in a future day of tribulation, we know the Antichrist brings the nations of his day in an army against the Jewish people, and particularly against Jerusalem. And they surround that city, we're told. And they siege it in the last days. In the time of Assyria, they are sent by whom? By God. By his hand. And for what purpose? To bring judgment against a sinful people. But the mistake they made was going too far and seeking to take Jerusalem as well. Similarly, in the time of the Antichrist, he is appointed by whom? By God. Paul talks about the restrainer being let loose so that the Antichrist will rise. In the time of the book of Revelation specifically, we hear that, that the men of the world are aligned under the Antichrist by the power of God. power of, uh, of God causes them to follow the Antichrist. They, they come under his power for that very purpose. 
And the Antichrist's reason for being allowed to come to power and to do what he will in the world is for what purpose? The time of Jacob's troubles? A period of judgment against Israel? But similarly, he goes too far. As he's indwelt by Satan himself, the Antichrist seizes upon Jerusalem with the intent of wiping out the Jews. Not what God wanted. Now, in the time of Isaiah, God promises Judah, through Isaiah, that he will rescue them from the Assyrian army. And he'll do so for what reason? For the sake of who? For Emmanuel. Not necessarily for the sake of the people who happen to be in that city, but so that the city is preserved, and it's preserved specifically for what reason? So that the Christ child will have a place to arrive in his first coming. Now, likewise, God promises to preserve Jerusalem against the might of the Antichrist's forces when they come against Jerusalem in the time of tribulation. And he does so in that day for what reason? That they would survive as a people and as a city so as to receive their Messiah upon his second coming. God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrian army by bringing Christ as the angel of the Lord who destroyed all those armies in a moment at night by a supernatural force. And likewise, as Christ returns on the clouds with all his holy ones and a sword in his mouth and destroys the armies of the Antichrist with just his word. Obviously, Isaiah is positioning the events of the Assyrian army and the day that they arrived and their purpose and the way they were destroyed and so on as a prophetic picture of what God will yet do again in the time of Christ's second coming. And what's really amazing about all of this is none of it's fake. None of it is contrived. It's all real and literal in both cases. That he has control over human events to create this picture so that he can repeat it all again later. That's how we'll end tonight. Heavenly Father, uh, Father, I've always enjoyed and I continue to marvel at seeing in your word the plan that you had put in place before the foundations of the world, that you could orchestrate it, plan it, reveal it, and and do all that you do is beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. And even as we begin to understand it in small pieces, Father, it overwhelms us. And yet, Father, it does exactly as you intend. It draws us closer to you. It causes us, Father, to marvel and to worship all the more. And we pray, Father, that what we have learned tonight will prompt that in our hearts and let us go out from here, Father, renewed in excitement, not just for the power and the wisdom in your word, but for the reality and the imminency of your second coming and for the kingdom that you have promised for all that is yet to happen. Father, thank you for the gift of this room, for the time and fellowship to follow. And we ask we would come back next week if it be your will. In Jesus' name, amen.